Well, I established the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society in 1977 because I felt there was a need to intervene against illegal activities uh, on the ocean. So we're really a marine conservation anti-poaching organization, which has now become a, a global movement. What we're fighting for is uh, to make sure that we all don't go extinct because if the ocean dies, we all die. And, uh, you know, since 1950, there's been a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton populations in the sea. And that's being caused because of a breakdown in interdependence and uh, diversity of species in the ocean. So uh, we're really fighting for the survival of the, of the planet. Welcome to SCANA, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I'm Mark Laren Young, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, a book I never could have written without first learning about that whale from our guest, Sea Shepherd founder, Captain Paul Watson. A champion of whales, marine life, and the oceans, Paul Watson is featured in several recently released documentaries, including Watson, A Look at His Life and Legacy, by the director of An Inconvenient Truth, a little Netflix flick called Seaspiracy, and Bright Green Lies by Julia Barnes, who we recently featured on Scanna. He's also just released a new book about orcas who've been removed from the seas and placed in captivity, Orcapedia, and has generously allowed us to run several excerpts from that book on our SCANA Medium page. You can find all the links in our show notes. As always, SCANA exists because of the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you like what you're listening to and want to hear more interviews with people who are making waves around the world, please support us at patreon.com. If you've always been kind of wary of Patreon because they were only set up for monthly support, that has shifted and they now allow annual support, which is easy to set up as a one-time thing. Our patrons do get all sorts of cool perks. They were recently invited on a virtual tour of the Royal BC Museum's exhibit, Orcas, Our Shared Future, and we're looking at doing another virtual visit soon. They also get sneak peeks at all our ocean-related projects, like our upcoming documentary version of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, and my two new books about sharks. Yep, sharks. Also, please check out our new podcast, Orca Bites, for shorter bite-sized pieces about orcas, oceans, ecoethics, and the environment. And speaking of bite-sized, we decided to cut this interview into two fantastic pieces. So here's part one of my interview with eco-warrior Paul Watson, where we talk about so many things, including seaspiracy, life as an outlaw, the impact of COVID on life in the oceans, and whether whales are more intelligent than we are. Spoiler alert. Paul Watson makes a pretty great case that they are. So because we're in these strange times, how are you and where are you? It looks like you're on your boat right now. No, I'm in Vermont, actually. In, in Vermont. Yeah. Very cool. So that's home now? That's where I live, yes. And are you allowed to travel again yet? Are you allowed back in Canada? Are you allowed out of the States? 
I can't go to Canada. I can go to France and other countries, but uh, the uh, you know Costa Rica had a had me on the Interpol raid list, but they dismissed the charges with a change of government, so that was dropped. But Japan still has me on that list, and uh, they actually haven't filed for extradition anywhere, but they keep me on that list, and uh, that prevents me from going to certain countries like Canada, where I'm actually a citizen, but. Uh, yeah, if I cross the border into Canada, they'll probably arrest me and extradite me to Japan because I'm probably just as unpopular in Canada as I am in Japan. Yeah, uh, that's just surreal. Um, can we talk about how COVID has affected your work and how you think it's impacted the oceans? There's been a 10% uh, decrease in commercial fishing. That's a positive thing, but uh, there's been an increase in poaching because when you have uh, enforcement agencies not do, out there doing their job, then the poachers move in. Now, it hasn't really impacted us. Uh, we quarantined our crews and the campaigns are going out. We have 11 ships and they're, they're out there. We have, we're doing anti-poaching patrols off of uh, the waters of West Africa in the Mediterranean, in the Bay of Biscay, uh, in, in the waters off of Mexico and Latin America. And uh, so those are carrying on and we're intercepting poachers. Last month, we uh, arrested and seized uh, six poaching vessels in the waters of uh, Sierra Leone. I'm really shocked to hear that, that COVID only slowed things down by 10%. I thought that it would have been more than that. Well, it doesn't seem to be. <laughs> wow, and it really has increased the poaching. That's that's tragic. Um, do you think it gave any of the marine life a bit of a break? Because one of the things that I'm seeing is you're at least seeing whales show up in places we haven't seen them before, and I figured that was because it was quieter for them and more peaceful. Well, it may be, but you know, whale populations have been rebounding. Uh, We've, since 1975, we pretty much uh, stopped 95% of the commercial whaling activities. There is no whaling in international waters anymore. Uh, whaling is now restricted to three countries, Norway, number one, Japan, number two, Denmark, number three. And um, so uh, we've made a lot, uh, there's been a lot of gain. Uh, since 75, you know, we've stopped Chile, Australia, Spain, uh, uh, Brazil, South Africa, all of these countries were whaling nations and they're no longer doing that. That's pretty amazing. Now, I see you've got Orcopedia right behind you. When we, the very first time we ever talked was for McLean's Magazine, and we talked about orcas in captivity. You told me about Moby Doll and the first orca ever in captivity, and now you've done your own book, Orcopedia. Can you talk about that book and how that came together? Well, I thought there was a need for people to truly understand just how many orcas have been captured, uh, how many are presently in captivity, and uh, how many have died in captivity. And uh, also to illustrate just how a captivity shortens the lifespan of, of these orcas. So, it, But really what we're talking about here is an international slave trade where the orcas are now the, the, the new slaves and they're being captured and sold for high prices for the sole purpose of uh, entertaining people. And uh, much to the detriment of the, of the orcas themselves, both their populations overall and to the individuals themselves. You know, there's no, not a single case of an orca in the wild killing a human being ever. It's never been recorded. And yet um, there, it has taken place in captivity. I mean, one orca alone, Tilikum, killed three people. And that's 
easily explained. I mean, you don't walk through the exercise yard of a maximum security prison and turn your back on the inmates. Uh, these animals are driven into uh, a psychotic rage by the frustration uh, of confinement and the, what they're forced to what they're forced to do. We treat them in uh, cruelly, and so therefore we shouldn't be surprised when they respond violently. Now, when you were doing this, was there a particular orca story that popped out for you? There's many, of course, but uh, overall, I was concerned about just letting people know where in the world orcas are being held and uh, the history of their uh, of their mistreatment. Uh, you know, the the difference the orcas in captivity have names, and therefore, you know, we tend to relate to them more so than the ones that are that are in the wild. But they're also, you know, the representative of their species over the, overall. And our callousness towards the ones we have in captivity uh, pretty much reflects our lack of concern for their survival in the wild also. Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the accomplishments of SeaWorld was by basically giving all the orcas the same name. It, you never got a sense that any of them died. So Shamu never died. Shamu is like freaking James Bond. Yeah, but uh, of course, uh, that's changed now. So they, they do all have different uh, names. And, uh, you know, they can be released. Uh, I, I'm certain that they, all we have to do is hold, um, build sea pens where they can be kept in a very large enclosure, like, say, a netted off fjord or an inlet or a bay until they can be accustomed to, uh, to getting by on their own. And we know they can survive on their own uh, because uh, Keiko uh, was released and survived in the North Atlantic. Uh, he died uh, of, um, of tuberculosis, but that was a disease that was contracted well in captivity, but did quite well on his own in captivity, even though it was difficult for him because he was, uh, you know, he was without a pod, and these are highly sociable creatures. But the story of uh, Tilikum really illustrates, I mean, here is a, a, an animal that was uh, literally snatched from its mother at a very, very young age and taken from the waters of Iceland to British Columbia, and then tossed into a pool with uh, two completely uh, alien orcas. That means the ones from British Columbia. They didn't have the same dialect. They were completely different. It's like, you know, talking somebody who speaks French into an English-speaking community, and of course, they can't really communicate. And so there was a lot of abuse, uh, not from the other orcas, but, uh, and then, of course, they had to deal with the, you know, the discipline of the trainers and that. And so it was really setting the stage for building up um, a psychosis in this animal, which uh, reflected, was reflected with the, when, it, when he killed uh, so many others, or three people, actually. It's interesting because I found for all the Blackfish talked about Telecom, they, they really didn't go as deeply as I, I would have thought into just how horrible things were in Victoria, which is where I am right now, uh, for Telecom. This was whatever anybody may have thought of SeaWorld, Victoria was worse. Um, that little tiny tank here with, with two other orcas was just a nightmare. And I've heard so many horror stories from people I know who worked here around here. Well, it's the case of Lolita and, a, you know, a one female orca that's been into a very small enclosure for, you know, close to half a century. You know, she, she's, uh, different than many because she survived longer in captivity, but that's a life of loneliness. No interactions with any other orcas during her entire lifetime. 
have you worked with Lori Marino or the Sanctuary Project at all about getting the orcas out into sea pens? No, spoken with her, but uh, no, we don't work uh, with the sea pen project, although we do certainly promote it. And I, I do endorse that in the book. Fantastic. Uh, the one that seemed to spark when I talked to Lori was Kiska. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about Kiska? Uh, which one? Uh... I think that's the one in uh, Niagara Falls. Oh, Niagara Falls, yeah. Well, you know, the one good thing about that I can, I, I can say is that Canada has passed legislation to, uh, you know, to, um, to stop this. And, uh, and so that, that bodes well for the future. Of course, it doesn't help the ones that are in captivity now. But of course, we also have the fact that the Vancouver Aquarium is no longer uh, uh, has orchids no longer and uh, will not be getting any. So, uh, I think that is dying out, uh, certainly in Canada. And um, hopefully, we can uh, do so in the rest of the world. The real problem, of course, is the emergence of of uh, these marine um, aquarium facilities uh, in places like China and Japan, uh, where they're growing actually, and people are becoming more. Uh, uh, enthusiastic about capturing more and more to put into those facilities. Is there anything that you see that can be done to dissuade people in China and Japan from uh, deciding to pick up this mess? Well, I think we just have to keep on the, um, you know, as far as education is concerned, keep that kind of pressure on and, you know, just make, make it clear that if you attend one of these things as a spectator, you're just as culpable as uh, the people who go out and capture them. You're, you're contributing to this uh, uh, cruelty, you're contributing to this international slave trade. Can you talk a bit about how you fell for whales in the first place? Well, I was raised in a fishing village in Eastern Canada, so I was around whales all my life. But, uh, you know, we, uh, in 1974, we set out to stop in, in whaling, first with the Russian whaling fleet in the North Pacific, and then and then after that with the Japanese. So um, I, to me, whales are a highly intelligent, very social, uh, self-aware, uh, sentient beings. And uh, I think in many cases, they're probably more intelligent than we are. Unfortunately, we tend to, re to measure intelligence by the ability to make tools, you know, so if a blob of protoplasm steps out of a spaceship with a ray gun, we wouldn't have any doubt about it. It's intelligent, but we don't, we're, we're not very good at understanding non-manipulative intelligences. But here we have animals with larger brains than ours, more complex brains than ours, and uh, we just dismiss them. I mean, if anybody's taken biology 101, you know, they, they show you a rat's brain and compare it to a, a dog brain, then compare it to a chimp brain, then compare it to a human brain. And they'll say, you can see by the increased size of the brain and the increase uh, of the convolutions on the neocortex area that humans are smarter than chimps, chimps are smarter than dogs. But they never put orcas or sperm whale brains up there because it makes us look really stupid and we don't like that. So. Uh, we, we just don't even mention it. But the fact is, is the human brain has 1,700 cubic centimeters. Uh, that's the size of our brain on average. But the average size of an orca brain is 6,000 cubic centimeters. The average brain of a sperm whale, the largest uh, brain to ever evolve on the planet, is 9,000 cubic centimeters. And the convolutions on the neocortex area of both orcas and uh, sperm whales are far more, more pronounced than they are on human beings. So physiologically, the evidence is there that they're smarter than we are. I thought you did a great job in Watson of explaining the extra lobe. Could you talk a little bit about that? It just how much more complicated these brains are than ours? Well, all mammals, from mice to people, have uh, three lobes to the brain, and uh, but cetaceans have four lobes, and that fourth lobe is um, uh, 
concerned with associative behavior, communications and thought probably. And uh, so it's a far more complex brain that, than we have. Uh, I mean, whales have evolved over the last 46 uh, million years and our species, uh, hominids have only been around for a couple million years. So they've had a long, a much longer time to, to evolve their, both their intelligence and also their ability to live in harmony within their natural ecosystems. You know, when it comes to intelligence, you know, people always, uh, you know, the way we measure it, I, you know, I was, I was debating this Norwegian whaler one time and uh, he says, well, Watson, you say that uh, whales are more intelligent than people. And it was a very stupid thing to say. How can you say something so stupid? And I said, George, by my criteria, whales are, have the ability to live in harmony with their natural ecosystem. And by that criteria, they're far more intelligent than we are. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, oh, by that criteria, cockroaches are more intelligent than we are. And I said, George, you're beginning to understand what I'm trying to tell you. Nice. Um, so you're a serious movie star these days. You keep popping, popping up on film. I've seen you in, in the Bright Green Lies. They haven't seen that. I didn't know I was in that. You're definitely in Bright Green Lies and uh, that just released here. Well, I'll probably get, I'll probably get a lot of environmentalists mad at me. Then. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it, yeah, just interviewed Julia Barnes for the podcast and talked to her about that. And Seaspiracy, can you talk about the backlash to Seaspiracy? Because that blew my mind. Well, we were expecting that, of course. You know, the fishing industry is very powerful, you know, and they got a lot of, <laughs> throw a lot of money into their PR machines. So it wasn't, wasn't unexpected, but... Here's a great thing. Seaspiracy, this is Lucy and Ali Tabrizi's story. They did a wonderful job putting it together over the last five years. But more importantly, they got it on Netflix, which gave the medium become sometimes more important than even the message because of the, how, how many people it can, it can uh, reach. And it trended uh, in the top 10 in most countries and the top one in, in, uh, in many countries, including the UK and Hong Kong. And so what it did was provoke a lot of controversy. Now, I keep hearing this stuff from the industry, like, you know, it's full of uh, misconceptions and untruths, but nobody ever points out just exactly what those are. In fact, they were putting out those accusations before they even saw the movie. Uh, but there's nothing in that movie that is really inaccurate, as far as I can see, except for one thing where I do disagree with it. When uh, the, the fishing industry says, well, when the, the film says that the fishing industry is going to collapse in 2048, that's been debunked. Yes, it has. Instead of 100%, uh, Dr. Boris Worm says, well, it'll probably be 88%. So, wow, is that going to be, is it, does it make a difference whether it's going to crash by 2048 or 2078? Personally, where I disagree with that, I think it's going to crash by 2030. So, uh, but everything in that uh, film is pretty relevant to the state of what's happening in the ocean. That is, it's, it's heading towards uh, a collapse of diversity and a collapse, a collapse of interdependence. What really threw me about the backlash to it was that it focused on this is, and this is vegan propaganda. It's anti-fishing, and I'm going, okay. I've been working on this book about sharks, and I've I've just been interviewing expert after expert after expert, and almost every single one of them said. You got to stop eating fish. You got to stop eating fish. You got to stop eating fish. It like it was a mantra. If you go to the Sharkwater Foundation website, what can you do? You can stop eating fish because it's mislabeled. There's mercury, etc. And yet, the idea of this movie saying you've got to stop eating fish was 
somehow treated as radical. James Cameron was interviewed about his movies and somebody interviewed him on Disney about it. And he said, you know, yeah, you really have to stop eating fish. You're not going to want me to say this. And yet somehow that was the, the big takeaway. I was more thrown really by the idea that these, that, uh, the tuna, the uh, dolphin-friendly tuna was self-policed. And I I just wanted to know if that was true. Because if that was true, that was the shocker for me. Yeah, that that wasn't anything, a big surprise to me. I knew for some time that that was just a label. It didn't really have any meaning. Uh, did Has Earth Island Institute uh, achieved a, a reduction in the number of uh, dolphins being killed? Yes, but you can't say 100%. Well, one of my questions about that was, do they pay any attention to any of the other bycatch, or is it strictly about dolphins? It's strictly about dolphins. I've said for years, what we really need is a tuna-free tuna. <laughs> you know, nobody talks about the tuna. But, uh, you know, we, we expected all this from the seafood industry. I mean, it's very, um, just follow the money, as it says in the film. The critics are working for the industry, you know, and uh, the people people who are not working, scientists not working for the industry aren't coming out with these uh with these criticisms. Now, you can find scientists who will defend any side of an argument. I call them biostitutes, really, when they're working for the industry. But it's the same as climate change. You'll have scientists, uh, a small group of scientists will say, well, you know, uh, there's no such thing. And then, of course, the majority will say they were. But they'll all the deniers will move towards a small group that are siding with what they, what they say. But um, the evidence is there. The fishing uh, industry is destroying the planet. You know, the other, there's two other things that they're saying is one is they're saying that uh, we need fish. People need to eat fish. And uh, poor fishermen around the world are going to be hurt by this. No, poor fishermen around the world are being hurt by the industrialized corporate fishing operations. It's not the guy in his canoe off, coming out of Sierra Leone that is a threat to the fish, to the fish populations, it's the giant super trawlers, the industrialized uh, drag trawlers, uh, hundred mile long 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 lines and gill nets, the giant purse saners. This is a threat not only to the fish but also to the artisanal and indigenous fishing communities, which really do depend upon it. Uh, you know, because some people have no choice. But you know, there's no excuse for catching an Antarctic toothfish along the coast of Antarctica, mostly caught illegally, and having it shipped to a restaurant in London or Paris and being sold as Chilean sea bass. It's not even a, Chile, a bass, and it's not from Chile. But they do all these marketing terms to get around it. The other um, criticism is that the film is racist. <laughs> and uh, because it states that, uh, you know, it says it focuses on, in on Chinese and Japanese, but it doesn't. It also call, talks about the, the Spanish uh, fleets. It, uh, and in fact, it doesn't really say as much about the Chinese fleets as I would like to, uh, to have said. Uh, there's nothing racist about exposing the truth. The biggest fishing fleets in the world are the Chinese and the Spanish fishing fleets. and. Uh, these guys are, are pirating the ocean. The reason we have pirates in Somalia and emerging piracy in the Gulf of Guinea is because of these European and Asian fishing fleets that are plundering the waters of those nations and stealing everything and forcing the fishermen there to turn to piracy for survival. So it's a very complex thing. Uh, to, uh, but the, you know, the other thing, the uh, fact that came to light there is that a good percentage of the fishing industry is strictly, completely illegal unregulated and uncontrolled. Yeah, I was just 
I, I was surprised by who came out against the movie. And again, I was surprised that the idea of don't eat fish was treated as a radical concept. Like the, yeah. that was the part that threw me more than anything else was that that was where the backlash was. Well, the Marine Stewardship uh, people and, and Earth Island, you have to look at, they, they get money from the, from the fishing industry in order to provide those labels. So Oceana, they all get money from the fishing industry. You have to question any organization that is getting money from the fishing industry and uh, uh, when, when they denounce the film. Okay, like that would that would track because it just, yeah, it the, the timing of the movie for me was really interesting because I just finished interviewing all of these shark people. And so I had just heard almost the exact same thing. So that wasn't even an interesting part of Seaspiracy for me. I'm like, okay, yeah, what else? And to me, the part that really stuck with me was, like I said, the idea, the uh, that dolphin friendly was in any way self-policed. That was the that was the only thing that I cared about in that in some ways where I was like, if, if this is true, that's horrifying, right? If that's a self-policed, if that's a self-reporting thing, because as we know from looking at oh mining companies and you know any resource extraction company, self-policing doesn't seem to work too well. Yeah, and a lot of observers. Uh... They're either bribed or the um, nobody listens to them, or in the most extreme cases, they're they're killed. There's quite a few observers have been thrown overboard, disappeared at sea. The other thing it touches on is the fact that the fishing industry is is a major uh, has a major problem with slavery. You know, people who are who work on those boats and can't get off. And this is even true in the United States. You know, American fishing boats come into Honolulu, and uh, the crew can't get off. Now, they're not slaves, but they're paid about $300 a month. Uh, but they're working for the American fishing industry. Now, I saw something on your Facebook page that really surprised me, where you were saying that there was similar criticism of both Sharkwater and The Cove when they came out. Oh, yeah. I don't recall there being criticism of Sharkwater. Can you? But I mean, I had a, I had a movie coming out at the same time, so I, I just knew Sharkwater was doing amazingly well and that Rob was, you know. Well, there's criticism pretty much of any film. Uh, uh, of course, you know, the, the, the criticisms of the code, which of course came mainly from the Japanese, of course, who didn't like it. And also people who decided that it had to be racist because uh, the people killing the dolphins were Japanese and you can't criticize that. Uh, Sharkwater got criticized because uh, uh, the fishing industry, a lot of sharks are being taken from the fishing industry. And there's, you know, there's a lot of resistance to uh, banning shark fins. But what was the complaint? Like, what did people say Sharkwater got wrong? Well, that there's plenty of sharks. They're, they're not endangered. And also uh, the sharks, uh, I think that uh, they thought that Rob portrayed the sharks as not being the real monsters that everybody has in their heads that they think they are. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. I missed that when it came out. That's, kind of, that's just wild. Can you talk about how Watson happened? Uh, Leslie Chilcott, who did uh, the film um, Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore, she approached me and asked if I was interested in her doing a documentary. And we said, yes, sure. And uh, so, you know, the fact that she did in Inconvenient Truth uh, certainly impressed me to, that she would do a good job. And she, I think she did an excellent job with it. It's some of that footage is just stunning. Um, just the stuff that she found, the, the undersea footage, the beauty footage is wonderful. And she 
got some of the most horrific whaling footage you've ever seen. And it's wild to see how much, of course, that you kept and have. Yeah, she did an incredible job. She's a great, uh, uh, fantastic uh, filmmaker. There's no doubt about that. And what did you, what was it like seeing yourself that way on the big screen? Like, Well, it's a third documentary film about me. There was Eco Pirate, Pirate for the Sea. So there's one in 2009, another in 2011, and then Leslie's in 2019. So there's actually been three. Uh, and they're going to be uh, Jacques Perrin, who made the film Oceans and Microcosmos, a French producer, is uh, he's making a motion picture then based on my life. So that that's supposed to begin production this year, but you never know. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've been selling the rights to my life story um, every year since 1981. In fact, I probably made more money selling the option than I'll ever make it to make a movie. I remember you telling me that because I remember one of the earliest ways we met was I read your story and went, hi, has anybody ever thought of making this into a movie? And you were so polite about it, explaining to me how options work. I had no idea. I just thought, how have you not been a movie? And I remember reaching out to you and you said, Mark, my life has been optioned so many times. I think at the time it was like Wes Craven and Mick Jagger are the names I remember you telling me. It's gone through a lot of, uh, it started off with Warner Brothers and it's gone through so many different uh, things. And it's an average of about $25,000 a year just for an option. Yeah, I remember you being you being right, quite lovely explaining to me how movie options work because all I knew was, you know, I just started writing TV and film and I thought, how has nobody done this? It just it just actually shocked me. I remember seeing the book in the bookstore and tracking you down. Uh, so what is, where is this movie at? Because this one sounds real. That's very exciting. Well, Jack Brown's been wanting to make it for some time and he had now has the rights. Uh, they've got the script and uh, they're planning to start it at the end of this year. So we shall see. Fantastic. Uh, there was one particular image in Watson that really stood out for me, and that was the image of you with Bob Hunter when he handed over the die and you just looked shattered. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, yeah, we, uh, it was my tactic was to put a, an indelible organic-based dye on the seals to destroy the value of their seal pelts. And uh, we knew that it wouldn't hurt the seals because Canadian scientists have been using paint actually, for, you know, in their population studies. And it didn't, it didn't cause any rejection from the mother. So uh, it was a good plan and it got a hell of a lot of publicity at the time. But then when we got there and we got confronted by all these angry sealers and everything, uh, the leadership of Greenpeace uh, backed down and uh, they agreed to not do it. And, uh, you know, I had no say in it really. Uh, so that was one of the problems I had when I was with Greenpeace. You know, you had a bureaucracy that, uh, you know, was constantly undermining the efforts that we were taking to, to actually do campaigns. Cool. No, it was just, that image just really stood out for me watching it. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss part two of our interview with Sea Shepherd Captain Paul Watson, where we talk about his adventures in politics and so much more. Other upcoming episodes include conversations with Franz DeWall, author of Mama's Last Hug, Seattle Times epic orca reporter Linda Mapes, and the director of The Loneliest Whale in the World, the story of Blue 52. If you want to help us share more stories about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment more often, please join Scanna's Pod at patreon.com. 
That support helps us pay for the tech and the people required to make this happen. And if we had enough support, we'd be able to spend more time chasing and telling stories to help fight for orcas and oceans. So please visit us at patreon.com backslash scanna. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Leonard-Young, Philip Ashdown, Kayla, Christina, Catherine Dodds, Solomon Siegel, John Lowe, and Yosef Wask. The scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, publishers of my three books about whales for younger readers, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, and Big Whale Small World, and Orcas Everywhere. And our friends at Eagle Wing, Canada's first 100% carbon-neutral whale-watching company and the first to support the 1% for the Planet initiative. Be sure to check out our show notes at Scanna.org and subscribe to our Scanna magazine on Medium, which does feature excerpts from Paul Watson's Orcopedia and a new excerpt from my book, Orcas Everywhere, that explains that, yes, orcas are whales. Follow us on social media and share this show with your friends. Share it with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm Russell Brand, and this was Under the Skin. Scanna is produced in Saanich, B.C., traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu, the Scanna site, and so much more are courtesy of our web wizard, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Uh-huh.